Hello and welcome to Payments Smartcast, Notch's podcast channel featuring discussions of interest to the payments community. Today we welcome Rich Oliver and George Warfel Jr., the authors of a new book called The Story of Payments, How the Industrialization of Trust Created the Modern Payments System. Rich Oliver, now retired, was an executive vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. George Warfel Jr. is general manager, fintech and payments strategy, at Haddon Hill Group. The, the first question that, that came to my mind long before Abe mentioned a podcast, but did mention a book, was what got you guys interested in writing a book on the history of payments? Well, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, I think a big part of it for me was, although I've worked for 40 years in technology, my formal education was in the humanities and social sciences. And I just kept encountering different ways that payments are made, and I started to wonder, why do we keep inventing new ways to pay? And I wondered also, in my other role that I serve as an advisor to uh, people that want to invest in new technologies, specifically payment technologies, are they, could I discover and share with them, or just use on my own, are there key critical elements that determine which new payment services will survive and grow? And what I came up with is the ones that we see in history and the ones that the current ones that are going to survive and grow are the ones whose starting point was not the technology that started out with what is a human, what is the human need here? And that opened my eyes to the fact that it's not a technology issue. It is a humanities issue. How can I keep my family warm? I'm going back in time because the first payment was way back in time. Well, the answer was inventing fire. How can I keep my group safe? The answer was inventing spears and bows and arrows. In the case of payments, the human need question was, how can the current system of barter, where we get together and I give you a fish and you give me some wheat, and next to us is someone who has corn and he'll give me corn if I'll give him a fish. How could we improve that? Because it's pretty clumsy. And what happened over time was that we came up with the idea that if I'm a fisher person and what I'm trying to barter are my fish and you're a farmer and what you're trying to barter is your wheat and I've got a fresh catch of fish, but your wheat isn't ready to be harvested yet. I'm not going to give you a fish because you have nothing to give me back. But what if you could give me a shell and say this shell is a symbol of trust that two months from now when my wheat crop comes in, come over to my field, give me back that shell, and I'll give you the wheat. So suddenly the barter system, which was very clumsy, opened up dramatically. It may have been actually a really big factor in the development of civilization. And I got fascinated by that and I said, I'm gonna write a book about that. 
And then immediately I called Rich. <laughs> well, that's funny that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, writing a book uh, about payments is something that was always in the back of my mind as a payments professional who was lucky enough to get in on the ground floor of certain payment systems like, like ACH, who, who over time, by the way, had friends and family ask me, what is it you do for a living? And my answer was, I work in payment systems. And I was greeted almost all the time by blank stares because nobody knows anything about the payment system. And then as an employer working in payments, as an executive, I wanted to hire bright new employees. But I'll be darned if I could find a comprehensive uh, payments reference guide to teach them anything about payments, which they needed to learn. So the book was always in the back of my mind. But as George just mentioned, the catalyst was George calling me a few days into his retirement. I think it might have been four days in his, his retirement and explaining that he was bored and wondering if I had any interest in writing a book. That tipped me from nice idea to why not. And the good news was that a lot of our areas of expertise were complementary and not overlapping, and that really encouraged us to start to work together. Well, well establishing trust, I mean, it, it, it's taken thousands of years. Yeah. It, and, it's, and every time there's a new innovation, that process of uh, trying to develop trust starts all over again with something new. I mean, the whole deal at the start of direct deposit of social security premiums was an amazing process of door-to-door -door type uh, efforts to sell people on, on getting their social security direct deposits rather than through the check in the mail. And it meant so much in terms of reduction in fraud and so forth. I mean, we had an example where the treasury had problems in sending social security checks to Mexico. There was 20 to 30,000 people drawing social security from the US government who lived in Mexico. And they were having major issues with the checks arriving and being stolen. And it actually spawned an effort working with the Federal Reserve to create a cross-border uh, ACH endeavor into Mexico to try to deal with that major trust issue that was occurring so very big deal yeah fascinating example of trust that I, I encountered in the research was if you go back to the first coins often the emperor or the king or whoever was in charge and issuing those coins had his or her own face stamped on them and here we are thousands of years later and our dollar bills, many of our coins. In fact, I went and went down to a shop where a numizary was working and asked, can you show me examples of coins from around the world in which there's a picture of the leader of the country or of a past leader of the country on either the currency or the coins? And he had dozens of examples. Well, why was that done? It was so people would trust that round piece of metal and trust that it was worth what it said at the bottom, five cents, 10 cents, or a hundred dollar bill that says this is worth a hundred dollars and you can trust that it is.
So I think trust has been absolutely essential to the payment system. The other thing is the distrust side. And I think Rich is absolutely right. There's probably nothing inherently wrong with Bitcoin or any of the other types of payments of that type, but people don't yet trust it. And that's, and that is, is that under, does that undermine it? Well, it makes it hard to get it adopted. You know, introducing a new currency um, usually requires, and, and Rich has probably had some examples in, in his work, a big campaign, a program, advertising, uh, giving it away. Uh, you've just got to get people over, over the hump that this piece of plastic, the original credit card back in the 50s, is the equivalent of whatever amount of dollars is written down on that charge slip that you're going to put the piece of embossed plastic under and run through a rickrack machine. And it took merchants and customers quite a while to be comfortable walking out of their house to go and buy something and having only their credit card. People were comfortable having their credit card in one part of the wallet and then a bunch of tens and twenties dollar bills in the other part, quote, just in case this new thing doesn't work. But people now, I go out with my wallet with only a credit card in it. And my younger brother goes out without his wallet. He just takes his iPhone. It's, 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 quite, it's quite a change. Uh, you know, along the lines of talking about the iPhone and, and the credit cards of the last 50 years, you, you mentioned in the book that 90% of the change in payments has occurred in the past 50 years. And I know some of it's obvious, uh, the, the, the phones and the, the computers, but is there, is there anything that you would single out that, that in the last 50 years that, that didn't happen in all those preceding centuries? Because there's, there's such a long, long history and then 50 years. There's so many more creative folks working with technology today and and i think where previously we used to look in the payments world for technologies that could improve payments uh, the atm comes to mind there as a technology that can improve payments now we see technologies searching for applications that they can facilitate uh, the computer chip and near field communication is an example. The computer chip embedded in a card was already being used in uh, ID cards for secure access to buildings, was already being used in hotel keys at high level chains before it became a popular device within a, a payment card. So I, I think that is part of the reason we're seeing such more rapid increase in payments options. But let me just add, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that faster innovation all also carries with it a number of challenges, such as economic success. And earlier, George talked about educating the user to use uh, a new type of alternative. We have never killed, I'll say that again, we have never killed a payments option in this country. 
we just keep developing new ones that uh, try to exist side by side. And you wonder how many of these can we do and still be financially sustainable? And, and how do we entice users to try new payments options to achieve some sort of a critical mass when they're perfectly satisfied by the ones that are already available? And I think another part of it just boils down to Moore's law. So many payment systems use a transistor now. And Moore's law says the number of, the volume of whatever that transistor is doing will increase at an ever increasing rate. So six years from now, we're not gonna be able to do six times as much with the transistor that's inside your credit card. We're gonna be able to do 32 times as much. So that, that rising curve, that compacting of these things seem to be coming at us faster and faster, I think is rooted in Moore's Law. And every time I look at the work going on in the labs I advise, they're using some newer technologies that are even more powerful than six years from now, you can do 32 times as much with the same amount of electricity. And I think we're going to see that curve keep rising more and more steeply, which means we're going to have a problem of possibly there are too many options to pay. And then they'll have to battle it out. A second factor that Rich and I call the walled garden is that most new innovations are unique to that innovation. What I mean is the first time someone comes up with a new way to pay, and mobile phones are the classic example, it's a great idea. I like it. It's easy to work. Oh, I can only pay other people who have the same app. I can't pay anyone. And that so-called walled garden meant that all the people who had a certain brand of payment system in their mobile phone could pay anyone else who had that brand in their mobile phone or that brand in their storage room, but they couldn't pay people who were using a different one. So we had 40 different little walled gardens and then the next phase change occurred. We got together, made a common platform, and this is where standards become so important and all that rich go you know, carry on on standards because it's really critical. Moore's law says you can invent a whole lot more stuff a whole lot faster than you ever thought you could. Standards are the only way you're going to get that to be a widely accepted new way to pay. So George mentioned the issue of standards. And, you know, when you look back at what has facilitated change, you have this interesting change. We mentioned the importance of ubiquity. Uh, in creating sustainable payment systems. And ubiquity is very much supported by the existence of standards. Because what people forget about standards uh, is that um, they not only facilitate innovation, but they create added certainty for the people that are willing to invest themselves in the creative process. And when they get something built, it's going to work 
because the standard already exists and is accepted within the payments world. And I think that is such a critical issue along the way. I think it's one of the most important changes that occurred over time. I mean, even when you look at, at uh, currencies, um, you realize that the development of standard valued currency backed by governments added certainty. So when you combine the, the innovative process, the creative process with an element of assurance that something will work because it's following a already adopted standard, then I think the possibility of success increases dramatically. You know, the average person probably doesn't really think twice about, you know, maybe they'll think, oh, should I use Visa or Amex for this one? Or, you know, but if, if you go to 7-Eleven and pull out a couple of bucks for a bottle of soda, you probably don't think too much about payment. Should people give more thought to, to, to payments? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I'll, I'll give my, my marketing answer. If they have to give thought to it, it's never going to take off. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I was, I was going to go pretty much in the same direction. But I think you notice when we discuss in the book this, some of the six underlying characteristics of successful payments options, the issue of creating incentives for people to use them has proved to be important over time. When ATMs were not used at the outset because people didn't trust them, the first successful uh, tests with ATM systems occurred on college campuses where they told the students, if you use the ATM to get money, we're gonna give you a coupon for free food. When we tried to accelerate the adoption of Check 21 within the Federal Reserve so we wouldn't be on two platforms, the paper platform and the image exchange platform for too long, we used financial incentives and disincentives to move uh, things along. When we see the near death of third-party credit cards, store cards, and so forth, over time, once the general purpose cards came out from the four big card brands, we now see a revival in those cards because of rewards that are now attached to the cards and because you don't have to have physical cards in your wallet, stacks of them anymore, you can have them as apps on your phone. Now we see that uh, the incentives of reward programs are being used to attract people to new solutions. So, you know, it's not the only characteristic, but one of the characteristics to get people to adopt new options is going to have to be incentives to use that option and better education about that option so that the development curve, the adoption curve isn't as long. We are terrible as an industry at the process of educating people on how to use payments. So that's why, Michael, I think there's some skepticism in both of our voices about some of the new payments options. Do we ever get to a point in the payments universe where we say, oh, this is the perfect payment system, we're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, because I work with people that invent new payment systems, every single one of them has said that. <laughs> I mean, and think, then, about, think about it, though. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet, and uh, people keep inventing new ways to do it. Uh, you know, will we have a chip just stuck in there to, we're putting chips in dogs to figure out where they are and not lose them. 
So, you know, what are we going to have in, in that environment, too? I mean, you think there has to be a natural saturation point. But I will tell you, and this may be an answer to a totally different question. Every time I think that I know the answer to when it's going to be good enough, something happens in the environment that causes us to rethink that process. And we call these unanticipated events in, in the book. But, you know, you look at 9-11. Uh, and you, nobody at that point in time realized that paper checks used airplanes to clear across the country. And suddenly, what was a totally acceptable, we're fine the way we are type of solution became unacceptable because we realized that if the uh, air system was violated and we had to shut down air transportation, that checks couldn't clear and people's bills couldn't get paid and late notices came out and mortgages weren't, weren't uh, accommodated. And so we invented check image exchange, which already existed, but was really advancing at an incredibly slow pace. And now in the COVID world, you see another unanticipated event where, frankly, the growth of, uh, of certain types of payments uh, wasn't, wasn't happening. We weren't seeing contactless payments move forward because people said, why do I need that? I'll just use the card that I had. And now suddenly with people afraid that handling currency can transmit a disease, handling a card and uh, swiping it can transmit a disease, we're seeing a rapid adoption there. And we're seeing an immense adoption in online purchasing because we're afraid to go to grocery stores and other types of outlets. And so what I thought was a fairly decent steady state is now advancing in different directions. And to give you an example, it's not just in the payments instruments, all the recent surveys that have been done on fraud in the payment system have said that the new winner in the most fraudulent type of payment is the payment made from your home computer, card not present uh, transaction, now the most prone to fraud. So now that we're using them more because we have to, and maybe adapting, adopting whole new ways of getting comfortable with using it, we now see the possibility that we're going to have to accelerate the investments we made in protecting card not present transactions. So do things uh, like biometrics, bringing them into the home with some sort of reading device, uh, 3D secure and other types of protection uh, for online transactions, they're going to get a boost. So it's not just new payments transactions, it's the stuff that surrounds it that can change over time and does so because of things that we would have never anticipated. So answering that question is a really hard one <laughs> to deal with. If you look into your crystal ball, and, and it's, this may not be a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where do you see the payments universe going, be it in the next few years, in the next decade, in the next generation even? What, what, what do you think or, or what, what, what would you like to see? What would you hope to see? Well, one thing that I feel we will see is a far greater internationalization of payments. It's pretty much the case now that in each different country, 
there is a different favored, most commonly used type of payments. Now, I don't mean that each country has a unique system. Almost any country that I can go to, there's cash used. All I have to do is exchange my U.S. cash for whatever that country's cash is in the airport if I'm on my way. In almost any country I can think of going to, certainly every country I have gone to, you can use a credit card as long as it's one of the, the large brand name ones because they have them. So I think what we're going to see in terms of internationalization is a greater emphasis on be able, being able to prove your identity is trustworthy than that your payment method is trustworthy. Are you the person that has the legal right to charge that particular payment to that particular account? So I think the next big step we've got to figure out how to make is something that is like a thumbprint. I put my thumb over a reader and that's how I make a payment or something that takes my gate. I was surprised when I worked for the government, the office that we had in DC, all the doors were locked all the time and no one had any keys or cards to get into them. There were sensors buried under the carpets and as you walked up to the door, it compared your gait, the way you walked, with a sample that on the first day you'd gone to work, you were asked to walk over the pad 10 times. Yeah, and I, I really agree with that globalization comment that George made. But I, I believe that mobility is going to be at the heart of everything we do. Uh, we have become creatures of uh, mobile technology, and I think improving the user interfaces to continue to promote payments options based in mobility is the advancement that I see. I mean, you know, after all, eventually all us baby boomer dinosaurs are going to get out of the way and we're going to allow some of this stuff to happen a little bit more quickly. But uh, I, I think that that is somewhere at the heart of it. Mobility is going to become such a common way to do payments. We won't see the physical cards anymore. Checks will pretty much be gone uh, and will be working pretty efficiently that way. But I will add that there are some hurdles there even if you have mobility. When we try to develop ways to take the ACH system cross-border, every country had different standards for that. Every country had different legal practices. Every country had different ways that they would discount, actually take fees out of incoming transfers and so forth. So there's a bunch of challenges that have to be accommodated there. The card world has been successful in making that happen. And I'm guessing that over time, other international standards organizations and business organizations in a world that is filled with cross-border commerce, we'll find out ways to solve that problem. All right. Uh, just a couple more for you. Uh, in, your, in your research and in looking back uh, over centuries of, of payments, 
what development or developments intrigue you the most and what payment systems do you find most fascinating? Wow. So I grew up uh, in the ACH world. And the fact that we were able to create a way to electronify almost every type of payment that was being made by an organization to me was a fascinating evolution. And it started with just a few banks getting together and then gained momentum, got the banking from the US government who wanted to use such a system efficiently. And then the thing I really liked about it is that it started out in little local areas. So an ACH grew up in, in Georgia after one grew up in California and then suddenly one in Minnesota and suddenly one in Boston. And it was this grassroots type of effort to electronify paper payments that became something that uh, continues to grow at amazing rates and has reinvented itself over time. And, and that, I think, has always been something that I, I thought was fantastic. The other thing I would add is a couple pieces of technology. The machines that process checks were just incredibly amazing. You could process 80,000 checks an hour, take pictures of them, figure out who they were going from, going to capture the accounting information, and make all these checks go into little tiny pockets in a 40-foot long machine was to me a piece of technology that blew my mind. And I'll never, I'll never forget the technology that uh, became the basis for writing checks across this country. What I would be excited to see in the future and actually have had a chance simply because the, the demo site is nearby where I live to see the first inkling of it is the payments will disappear. The site that I was able to go to is a store. It's a, it's a little, it looks like a bodega. It's a little grocery store, but it's absolutely modern. And you walk in and you get a cart and you notice the cart's got, you know, some, some things on it that you didn't expect. There's a flat plastic piece at the bottom and the handle feels kind of odd. And uh, this clearly is a grocery cart that's got some extra feature in it. Well, the extra feature in it is it's one part of the system that has, has been invented enough that there's this testing site out that I went to where the payment disappears entirely. You take your cart, you go up and down the aisles, you put things in your cart, you walk out the door. You do not at ever any point make a payment. Well, what's going on is the cart is judging the weight of the things you put in. When you take something off the shelf, another sensor signals the central computer in the store that you've picked it up. There are cameras, and they make them very obvious. They're not hidden cameras. They're obvious, which I think is good, that are tracking what you're putting in the cart and the pattern you're taking through the store. 
there are sensors when you walk in and sensors when you walk out. And all of this data is being collected while you're doing your grocery shopping in the usual way you do it, randomly with a list, putting things in your, your cart and then taking them back out and putting them back on the shelf. It catches that. That in the tests that they're doing, and they haven't published anything yet, but I had a chance to talk to one of the engineers, they basically are saying it's as accurate as the person who scans the items and punches, punches up the numbers and then has you swipe your card in a grocery store today. It's a little eerie because there's no staff. There's only customers. <laughs> so let me ask you, when, when you talk about things like that, the, the, the grocery store that figures out what you bought based on weight and, and so on, when you think back of the people you researched, the people who paid trade by trading shells, the people who carried the jeweler's receipts because it was too dangerous to carry anything else. What do you think they would say if they landed in 2020? What the centurion on, your, on the Amex card, what would he say if he landed here today and saw how people pay for things? They would say it was impossible. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the thing that keeps coming to mind is, is that uh, we always think the future is somewhat impossible. Incredibly, the other night we were sitting around with family trying to watch something on TV and the movie Back to the Future came on. And you've just asked that question. What would people think when they jumped into the future? Unfortunately, in that movie, they jumped into the past more than the future, but it ended with with the main character wanting to go into the future. And I, I think it would be hard for them to conceive because their basis of knowledge is so confined by what's available at the time that you couldn't predict some of the things that have happened, George. Is, is that where you come out? Yeah, and what I will be fascinated to see is what are the new ways that trust is established and communicated? 